We are working our way through the New Testament book of Ephesians. So uh, I invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex in front of you if you are in need of a Bible. Uh, this letter, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, is a letter that we have been studying uh, since September, I believe. We took a couple weeks off um, in December and in the beginning of January. Uh, but the reason that we are studying Ephesians is, uh, if you do not know, uh, back in September, we uh, presented a new vision and mission and values. And uh, what we uh, made clear was that it all um, is grounded in the book of Ephesians. And so we thought it would be good to walk through this book together and um, to get an understanding of uh, why and how our new vision is uh, rooted in uh, this glorious book. Uh, the theme that we keep coming back to is really this, that God is at work in this world in the person of Jesus Christ to put back together all that is broken. That's God's project in the world. And uh, another theme that stems from that is that God has formed a family. It's the church, his people. And he has called those people to enter into that project of his to um, see that life comes into what is dead, that light comes into what is darkness. Most recently in Ephesians chapter 5, we uh, have been considering what it means to imitate God. Because at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, uh, Paul begins by saying, be imitators of God. And what we have seen uh, in these verses so far is that we imitate God by uh, walking um, in love, by walking in the light. And this morning, what we are going to focus on is walking in wisdom. I'm going to have uh, Amy Norton come. She's going to read our passage for us, and then I'll pray, and we will get in it, in it, into it together. I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. It's on page 978, if you want to flip to it. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your word, for your revelation of yourself, your character, and your ways. We pray that you would help us to see more clearly as we look at this passage this morning. We pray most of all that you would grant us wisdom, that we might embody your story well as your people. Uh, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us uh, this morning, wherever we find ourselves, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray for the glory and honor of Jesus. Amen. Should I take this job or not? 
Should I move here or there? Should I accept that invitation or not? Should I hang out with those people or not? These are just some of the questions that confront us on a daily basis. And what is it that all of these questions require? Ultimately, they require wisdom, right? As I shared at the beginning of the service, each and every one of us, deep down inside, we long for wisdom. We want to be wise because we want to know how to answer those kinds of questions that we're confronted with regularly. We also want to be able to make sense of life, just like big picture, don't we? We we want to know what the purpose of life is and what our role is in that purpose. And so you might say that we long for wisdom when it comes to the, the practical daily decisions that we make, and we long for wisdom when it comes to just making sense of life in general. Well, the good news is that God recognizes that desire, that longing for wisdom that we have. He recognizes the need that we have for wisdom, and he moves toward us with his wisdom. Uh, He moves toward us with his word. He moves toward us uh, with himself in the person of Jesus and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God does not keep wisdom from us. He actually brings wisdom into our lives. As we focus on this third um, kind of concept or theme here in Ephesians 5, again, we've talked about what it means to walk in love. We've talked about what it means to walk in the light. And now we're talking about what it means to walk in wisdom. And the key question here is, like, how do we do that, isn't it? How do we live wisely? How do we walk in wisdom? And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Um, And we're going to look at a few things here. Um, The first is to make the best use of our time. So if we're thinking about what does it mean to be wise, what does it look like, the first uh, nugget of wisdom that we encounter here in these verses, 15 through 21, is we're called to make the best use of time. But before uh, Paul says that, Look at where he begins there in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Now, if you're a good and careful reader of any kind of text, um, Anna did a beautiful job of mentioning this last week when she read the scripture passage, that we always want to look at context. We we always want to um, identify the bigger picture here, especially when we're working through a book of the Bible uh, in this way. We have to remember that, for example, Ephesus or Ephesians, as we said, was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And sometimes we can kind of go off the rails if we're just dissecting every word and every verse in a way that pulls it out of its context. So we want to keep in mind the context as we're moving along. And when we see that word then, where Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, He's referring us back to the verses that came before. And we saw from those verses last week that God calls us out of darkness and makes us his children of light through Jesus. That was the the big idea of last week's sermon. But along with this new identity, we are given a new purpose. And that new purpose is to seek what is good, what is right, and what is true 
in such a way that the darkness around us is exposed and the light of Jesus shines brilliantly and compels others to want to enter into that light. So that's the context. And so when Paul says, look carefully then, he's basically saying that um, in light of everything that I just said, in light of the fact that you are now children of light, that your mission, your purpose is to shine that light brilliantly into the darkness, look carefully at how you live. What does this mean exactly? Well, We've, um, as we focused on walking in uh, love, walking in the light, we keep saying that these are not the first times that Paul is using the word walk in this book. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of chapter 4, that represents a transition in the letter um, to the Ephesians. The first three, verse, ver, uh, three chapters of Ephesians are full of rich, deep theology and teaching. Basically, what Paul is doing in the first three chapters of Ephesians is telling us the story of God, unpacking the story of God, telling us who God is and what he's done for us and what he's up to in the world. And then we get to chapter four and there's a transition. Uh, There's a transition in, in the fact that Paul is now saying, okay, keep in mind everything that we just covered, but now we're going to talk about how to practically live in light of it. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he specifically says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so he keeps coming back to this theme of how we walk. Well, walk is a metaphor for uh, the whole of life, for how we live, especially from an ethical perspective. Um, Jewish uh, wisdom literature uh, uses this terminology frequently, this idea of to to consider how we walk through life, how we walk in life. It has to do with applying what we know. And so one of the key phrases in our new mission statement is embody God's story. And we chose that intentionally because we we don't want to just know God's story. That's important. We, We do want to know God's story very well, but we don't want to just simply know his story as information. We want to be transformed by that story, and we actually want to be transformed in such a way that we live out the story. And so that's why our values are knowing, becoming, and doing. We could say that knowing, becoming, doing really captures the essence of wisdom, because wisdom has to do with uh, applying our knowledge. You know this from life. You know plenty of smart, intelligent people who are fools, right? I, I do. It's unfortunate. Smart does not equal being wise necessarily. And so it's something different. This is what Paul is stressing here. It has to do really um, in this context with integrating our faith into all of life. So he says, look carefully at how you live. That literally means to to see, to watch, to, to, to be aware of. And what does he add to that? Not as wise, but as unwise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, we're going to unpack what is in between there, but that phrase, because the days are evil, that's one of the reasons why we have to take time to look carefully at how we live. Because the world around us, uh, as we saw last week, is a world that is filled with darkness, And if we just go about our days, go about our time mindlessly, going with the flow, 
we're going to find ourselves drifting into darkness. I can't remember who it was um, that said, we don't drift into the kingdom of God. We don't drift into love. We don't drift into light. We don't drift into wisdom. We drift ultimately into darkness. And so Paul says, look, beware of, watch, see how carefully you live. Watch carefully how you live your life. In other words, pay attention. Pay attention. We know how important it is to pay attention in you know, different areas of life, like driving, for example. Um, we know that that's important. Sometimes we find ourselves um, not paying attention, and maybe we're reminded because we look up and we're about to ram into the car in front of us or something like that, but we're used to um, being told or reminded um, of the need to pay attention in general. But what about like our, our, our life as a whole, like how we walk through life? Paul's saying, pay attention to that. If, you are, if your spirituality, if your Christian spirituality, your Christian faith is going to be fleshed out in your life, it's not going to happen accidentally. You have to pay attention to your life. You have to choose wisely on a daily basis. You have to make conscious decisions to live wisely. And we have here, Paul, in, in these verses, Three times he says, not this, but this, not this, but this, not this, but this. Specifically, it's not as unwise, but as wise, not as foolish, but understanding, not as drunk, but filled. What Paul is doing is he's connecting faith, um, he's connecting wisdom, uh, the Old Testament uh, Jewish tradition of wisdom to everyday faith. This is actually one of the major themes in the story of God. Last year, at some point, we did a topical study of the book of Proverbs. And what we saw time and time again is that God's desire in giving us wisdom literature and giving us wisdom is so that we might know how to skillfully uh, navigate life in a way that brings about our flourishing, but most importantly, brings about glory to God. It's about the real stuff of life, like what happens on the street. That's biblical wisdom. He says to make the best use of the time. To make the best use of the time. Paul says something similar in the letter to Colossae. Um, Colossians 4, 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And it's interesting because the context of these two passages are very similar. What Paul has in mind is actually, uh, in large part, outsiders and how they're viewing followers of Jesus and how they're viewing the faith as a result of how followers of Jesus live. But what does it mean when he says to make the best use of the time? Well, the language that he uses here, the word, it, it literally means to, to, to redeem, to, to buy up in daily life. It, it's commercial language drawn from the, the marketplace. Um, it has to do with a, a, a buying of something which exhausts all uh, possibilities that are available. We could say, snap up every opportunity like a bargain. That's what Paul has in mind here with making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. We come to a phrase like this, and depending on where you're coming from in terms of faith or no faith, maybe you jump on that right away and you say, 
Yep. That's how the Bible talks. The Bible exaggerates things. Um, I know a lot of good people. Uh, I know that there's a lot of goodness in the world. It's just um, ridiculous for us to say that the days are evil. Well, I want to clarify something. When Paul says that the days are evil, he is not saying that the only thing that exists in the world is evil. Uh, we, we actually, much of the book of Ephesians wouldn't make sense, actually, if that were the case. But what he is saying and what the Bible tells us is that as a result of sin, so sin uh, we could capture as re- rebellion, resistance against God. It's the opposite of, of wisdom. It's foolishness. It's moving away from God's good intentions and designs for life. When we do that, we are sinning against him. When the first human sinned, sin and its consequences entered into the world, crept into every area of life. And from that point on, what we could say is that the world is plagued by a darkness that covers, that is oppressive. Again, it doesn't mean that there are no evidences of good or glory in the world. It just means that there is a darkness that covers us. And as we've said multiple times recently, it's not just a darkness out there, it's a darkness that resides in here. Uh, Yesterday, I watched um, a documentary on Netflix about the life of Aaron Hernandez. Um, Some of you might know who Aaron Hernandez is. He was uh, a former uh, NFL player, Uh, with the New England Patriots, uh, won a national championship at the University of Florida, won a Super Bowl with the Patriots. Um, His life story is one of just deep darkness and sadness. Uh, Touching on all kinds of manifestations of darkness in life. Um, Drugs, uh, sexuality, um, pride, um, you name it. Uh, it played a part in Aaron Hernandez's life. And as I was reading this, I was just reminded of the fact that the world is an unbelievably dark place. That darkness can just be suffocating in the lives of people. And sadly for Aaron Hernandez, he was convicted of murder at the height of his career and ended up taking his own life in prison. But as we encounter things like this, or at least as I encounter things like this, I come to a a phrase like this, the days are evil, and I say, the Bible's wise. God's revelation to us is wise. God is being honest with us about the way things are because he wants us to know. And he doesn't want us to just know intellectually. He wants us to be able to navigate life wisely. And we say that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, Um, We could also say in this context that the beginning of wisdom is recognizing darkness, being honest about it. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says this, You once followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. And um, in chapter 6 that we'll get to in a few weeks, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The days are evil. And for us to be wise, we have to acknowledge that. How do we redeem the time then? Well, we redeem the time. We make the best of the time that we have by using our time wisely. And that's just common sense, isn't it? 
But here's the thing. When it comes to paying attention to our lives um, and making the best use of the time, it requires that we slow down. We've been talking a lot about this in different ways. I keep bringing it up in sermons, but we have to slow down. Uh, There was an article that was written uh, just, I think, in the past week or so. Um, The title of it is, Every Place is the Same Now. With a phone, anywhere else is always just a tap away. And in this article, the author says this, Anywhere has become as good as anywhere else. The office is a suitable place for tapping out emails, but so is the bed or the toilet. You can watch television in the den, but also in the car or at the coffee shop, turning those spaces into impromptu theaters. Grocery shopping can be done via an app while waiting for the kids' recital to start. Habits like these compress time, but they also transform space. Now, every time I bring up something about technology or social media, um, whatever it might be, like I, I want to say that uh, I'm not saying that these things are evil. Um, I have a phone here. I'm actually preaching from an iPad. I actually only use my iPad on Sunday mornings, I've come to realize. Um, But technology is not bad. Um, Technology is not evil. In fact, it would actually be unwise of us for for us to write off anything like that because it can actually be, be used for good according to God's intentions. But we also have to recognize that, that technology, our smartphones, they're not neutral. And we have to make conscious decisions on a daily basis about how we are going to relate to technology, how we are going to relate to our smartphone in particular. And if we're not careful, if we don't pay attention to our lives, we can find ourselves drifting from authentic, real relationships with people. We can find ourselves drifting from actually um, carrying the burdens of, of people in real life. Maybe we think of, if we just comment on their Facebook page that we're praying for them, that that counts as carrying their burdens. It doesn't. I mean, don't stop doing that. I'm sure it means something, but technology is not neutral. Our smartphones are not neutral. Live as those who are wise, not as those who are unwise. Is your smartphone swallowing up your life in such a way that you're not paying attention to your life and you're just mindlessly constantly going through life, scrolling through your news feed? That has implications for life. It has implications for your flourishing and the flourishing of others around you. Now, toward the end of the sermon, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more um, about that and how it connects to spirituality and faith. But the next, um, next way um, that we uh, walk in wisdom is that we have to understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand the will, what the will of the Lord is. Now here's the deal. Paul's not talking, like when you hear that, um, you, you probably do what I tend to do when I hear something like that, understanding the will of the Lord. You think of, all right, um, discerning the will of the Lord about whether I should buy that house, whether I should take that job, whether I should accept that invitation. Uh, all decisions in life are important, and we should submit those to God and seek to discern his will. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about God's plan in general in the world. In other words, Paul is talking about what God is up to in 
the world. And so if you read it in light of that, Paul is saying, do not be foolish, but understand what God is up to in the world. Understand his purpose. Understand his plan. If we're going to make the best use of the time, we have to know what it is that God is doing or wants to do in the world. And from the very beginning of our series, our study of Ephesians, we found that it's captured in verse, uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Paul says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God up to in the world? God is on a mission to put back together all that is broken as a result of the fall. God is on a mission to bring his wisdom to bear on all of creation. And, how, and, and who does he use and how, and how does he use us? He uses us in that mission. How does he use us? By equipping us with his wisdom, by revealing his wisdom to us through his word. And as we begin to know that wisdom, as, as it begins to transform our hearts and we begin to embody it, we participate in his mission in bringing his wisdom to bear on all things so that all things might be put back together in Christ. So what does this involve? Well, for starters, we need to love God's story. We need to love his story. There are all kinds of stories that we live by. Um, sometimes we buy into the narratives of our culture and our worldview, the way that we look at the world, the way that we answer the big questions of life, such as, who is God? Does he exist? Who am I? Who are people? What is wrong with the world? How is it made right? So often we turn to the various narratives of our culture to get those answers. And so really, at the heart of all things is a question of allegiance and love. Do we love our culture and our world around us more, or do we love God and his revealed story to us in his word? I, I, I think that's actually a better starting place than, all right, I need to read the Bible more. No, no, let's take a step back. What is it that we love at the core of who we are? And let's begin by asking God through the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate within us a deeper love for his word. Because if we love his word more, what will happen? What will happen? We'll read it more. We'll spend more time in it. And not out of duty, not because it's a, a spiritual exercise that we need to check off, but because we love God and we so want to know his will and embody it in life for the, his glory and the good of his creation. The next thing that Paul says, if we want to know how to live wisely, is he says to be filled with the Spirit. Specifically, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is really interesting to me. Because now what Paul is doing is he's connecting the Old Testament wisdom tradition to this concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, how, how do we access that wisdom tradition? How, how do we access God's revealed will? Obviously, it's revealed to us in Scripture, but then more fully, how, how do we access it and actually embody it? It's 
by being filled with his spirit. The reason I think that I find this so interesting is because I, I, it seems to me that in general, when we think about the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we think of maybe like miraculous gifts, right? We think maybe of, of healing, of prophecy, of speaking in tongues, and um, all of those things have a, a place in God's story. But what's interesting to me here is that Paul is connecting this idea of being filled with the Spirit to actually living everyday, everyday life in the mundane. Sometimes I think it's easier for us as Christians to desire this filling of the Holy Spirit in some spectacular fashion, but then we go out and live our everyday lives with disregard for the things of the Spirit. What Paul is doing, he's connecting it. Being filled with the Spirit involves living out His revealed will, his, his, embodying His story in the everyday stuff of life. That's what Paul has in mind here. And I, I think a question that we can ask ourselves at this point is, what do we fill ourselves with? Yikes, huh? It's a dangerous question to ask, a scary question to ask. But like, if you really had to evaluate it, be honest with yourself... What are you filling yourself with? Paul says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we uh, acknowledge that there are three times here in these verses where he says, not this, but this, not this, but this, not this, but this. And here he says, um, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it that Paul specifically mentions drunkenness here? Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, commentators and people studying this passage um, have offered up uh, all kinds of views, but I think it's because of the context into which he was writing. And we've actually touched on this uh, a few times throughout the series. Um, the city of Ephesus was a city um, of lust. It was also a city of power. And along with that power, it was a city of great inequality. But it was a city of lust. And we talked about, we've talked about things like mystery religions in this series that were commonplace in Ephesus and all of the, what we would say are bizarre um, practices that went along with that, that involved um, sexual orgies and immorality and all kinds of other things. And it wasn't just the, the mystery religions. Um, it was some of the other religions or ways of life in Ephesus. Sexual immorality is where Paul begin, begins in this chapter. It was prevalent, and it was oftentimes connected to drunkenness, but oftentimes connected in a spiritual way, because the belief was that as you give yourself over to drunkenness, you are able to uh, achieve higher planes of thinking or experience. And sexual pleasure was associated with that. I believe that, that, I mean, that has to be part of it because Paul is writing into a specific context to a particular people who would have come out of some of those kinds of lifestyles. And he's saying, no longer be filled with those things. You, don't not, you do not need to pursue those things to achieve some kind of higher plane of spirituality. Rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
be filled with the Holy Spirit because the filling of the Holy Spirit empowers you to embody God's story in the practicalities of everyday mundane life. It leads to debauchery, he says, immorality, uh, folly. You see how there's this um, ongoing clash in these texts between foolishness and wisdom. And it's helpful to, to realize that I said uh, early in the service that I don't think that every, any one of us would sit here right now and say, you know what? You know what my goal in life is? I want to be a fool. I really want to be a fool. I want to do all kinds of foolish things with my life. I, I, I don't think that we um, start there. What happens instead is that we find ourselves in the heat of a moment. We're faced with temptation, with a decision. And we choose foolishness over wisdom. And, and I can't help but um, just coming out of watching that Aaron Hernandez series, play, that play out in his own life. Our decisions matter. They, they add up. Now, God's grace and forgiveness run deep, but we have to recognize that there are consequences to the decisions that we make. And when we begin to choose foolishness over wisdom, it, it becomes a part of who we are. And so we don't begin by saying, you know what, I want to be a fool, I'm going to live foolishly. Rather, we begin making foolish decisions here and there, and then what happens is we look back and we realize, I have been such a fool in this season of my life. But Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, because it's the Spirit that accompanies his story, his word, that helps us to navigate uh, the everyday stuff of life, including the temptations and decisions that we make. And so you could think of it that way, that if we just simply try to read God's story, his word, apart from the help of his spirit, uh, it's not going to do anything. We need the spirit to work. And um, this is actually um, reflected here in how Paul writes this portion of the text. Notice that when he says, be filled with the spirit, it's passive. And this is what can make it so hard for us as followers of Jesus who maybe want more of the Spirit. We can't fill ourselves with the Spirit. It says be filled with the Spirit. It's passive. In other words, God is the primary agent. God is the one who does the filling. So if God is the one who does the filling, what does it mean for Paul to say be filled with the Spirit? We have to live present to God. We have to live our lives in his presence with an increasing awareness of who he is and what he is doing in the world and in our own lives. And it's that awareness of his presence that draws us, that he then draws us um, more deeply into his very life and fills us with his very spirit. And be filled with the Holy Spirit is in the present tense. And what that means is that it's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing activity. We could, we could translate it in this way. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. If we want to be wise, we have to be people who are walking in alignment with the Holy Spirit. Tiffany Lewis has written an article called, Have Smartphones Hijacked Our Spirituality? So I told you we would connect back to 
the whole smartphone discussion. She says this, smartphones aren't just changing the way we think, they also are impairing our spirituality. I know, she says, because I feel it in myself, the spiritual deadening that comes with always being tied to a device. We have become completely reliant on our phones. They're the ultimate multi-purpose tool. But faith and spirituality operate on a different plane. This is so important. Religious practice cannot effectively take place in memes and tweets. Our connection to God must be broader than a three-by-six-inch screen and deeper than a data pool. In order to be filled with the Spirit, I said that we have to be present to God. If we're going to be present to God, it means that we have to become less present to our smartphones. And maybe your issue is not smartphone. You can fill in whatever other form of technology or whatever it is. But the life of deep spirituality in Jesus requires us to pay attention to our life. It requires us to slow down, to examine, to reflect. And our smartphones do not facilitate this. Again, smartphones are not evil. There are ways in which my smartphone helps my spirituality with different Bible apps and Bible reading apps and all of that. So I'm not saying uh, that smartphones are evil. Get rid of your, your, your smartphone. But what I am saying is that we must be aware. To be filled with the Spirit requires awareness of God's presence and what he's up to and his ways in and around us. After saying be filled with the Spirit, he concludes, Paul does, with one, two, three, four different um, results of being filled with the Spirit. The first is in how we speak. He says in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So one result of being filled with the Spirit is that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does that mean? Because I'm going to tell you, some of you already know this, you, you don't want me just walking up to you and breaking out in song. It's not going to bless you. Uh, it might bless you with humor, but that's about it. So what does Paul have in mind here? Well, psalms, uh, hymns, spiritual songs, this is another part of the text where there are different views about what they are and what's going on here. But I tend to think of the psalms as the literal psalms in the Old Testament with, as hymns that were songs that were familiar, um, like during Paul's writing. And one example of that could be actually the um, verse 14 that we looked at last week. Uh, because I said that it could be in verse 14 that Paul is actually using the lyrics of a, of a hymn, known hymn of the time to actually um, get his point across. And then songs of the Spirit, possibly spontaneous songs um, sung out to, 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 to God in, in worship. But, but how do we, what does this have to do with our addressing one another, our, our speaking to one another? Well, I, I think it gives us a context. I, I wonder how much time, I wonder how many times we speak to one another out of cynicism, of having to put up with each other, uh, of viewing one another as a burden. But Paul is putting it in the context of worship, all of life worship. And one of the ways in which we worship um, is in how we speak to one another, how we use the, the very language of worship we could say, 
how we borrow the language from worship and use it in everyday life to bless and encourage one another. I think this fits really well with what we try to do in worship on Sunday mornings. We walk through the story together. And so what might it look like for us to begin to borrow from the language of Sunday worship and use it to bless and speak, to, to speak and bless one another throughout the week? Singing. Speaking and now singing. The end of that, um, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is a posture of worship. Um, next week, uh, Mike Tolliver, one of our elders, is going to preach on all of life worship. Um, and this kind of sets him up well, because this is what Paul uh, has in mind here, that a posture of worship. It doesn't mean that we um, simply go through all of our days singing audibly. Um, there may be times in which we do that, but it, it's more than that. It's a posture of the heart. It's viewing all of life as an opportunity to worship God. It's another way in which we embody the story. He says from there, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned cynicism. How do you defeat cynicism in your life? I know in my own life, one of the most powerful ways that I defeat cynicism is by growing in thanksgiving, by growing in awareness of my gratitude, of who God is and what he's done for me. When we lose touch with what God has done for us in Christ, when we lose touch uh, with the fact that all good gifts come from God himself, we quickly move toward cynicism. And when I, um, tend to get, when I get cynical, what tends to happen is everything in life is crappy. You know what I mean? Can I get an amen? I thought so. Everything in life is crappy. There's nothing good, right? God's against me over here. He's against nothing. But the reality is, is that even though in the moment, my cynicism, it seems so true, when I actually begin to reflect on it, I realize how untrue it is, how there's far more good, how, there, how there's far more examples of clear examples of God's provision in my life. And what happens is when I dwell on those more than the negativity, it creates within me a, a a heart, a posture of worship. And I find myself giving thanks to God. And guess what? When you live that way, it helps you to enjoy his creation more. Maybe it's why Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Imagine being able to eat and drink, to take pleasure in the good gifts of God in a way that actually allows you to worship. That's what God wants because it causes you to flourish and it gives him Glory. And then finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in two weeks, we will um, go into the next session, section of Ephesians 5, and the whole phrase of wives submit to your husbands. Yeah, I'm going to have to deal with that. We're going to talk about that. Um, and so we'll actually talk a little bit more about the word submit um, then. But Paul is creating the context here before he goes into these verses. And for now, what I want to say is this. How do you receive that challenge, that call to submit to your brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't like to submit. I don't like to submit to God oftentimes. I mean, that's 
like my sin. It's, it runs contrary to our sinful nature to want to submit. But he calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He keeps bringing everything back to, to worship. It's all an act of worship. And, and I think what he has in mind here, when, when we talk about submitting, it's not just doing whatever somebody else tells you to do. Uh, I have... Oh, my brother or sister in Jesus told me to do that. I have to do it because I have to submit. That's, that's not it. It has more to do with elevating um, their needs above our own. It's being in relationship with one another as the family of God in which we less and less view each other as a burden. And more and more we view um, each other as um, image bearers of God, as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus and who have all kinds of ways in which they can bless us and encourage us and enhance our life in Jesus. Sadly, I think, um, particularly maybe it's a unique challenge for me as a pastor that like, I think that's my role to everybody else. But the reality is, is that this command to submit to one another, I am called to submit to you in different ways. I am called to elevate your needs above my own. I am called to recognize that you have, oppor- you have ways in which I need you to bless me and enhance my life in Christ, and without that, I will be lesser for it. And the last thing is, is that, that phrase there, submit to one another, submitting to one another, it reminds us of the corporate communal context of all that Paul is writing. It's so easy for us as we get into the details of um, a book of the Bible like this to begin thinking individually and applying it all to us. But here we have the reminder that community is in view. And one of the ways in which we worship Jesus, one of the ways in which we practice all of life worship is by paying close attention to our relationships. And and, and I just want to end with where we began. Look carefully then at how you walk. When it comes to relationships, we so easily allow um, maybe an unkind thought to take root. You know, something happens with one of our brothers and sisters in Jesus, and this unkind thought comes to mind, and we think poorly of them, and we Kind of, we, we don't pay attention closely, and we run with it, and um, it accumulates until we have this grudge, or we realize that we have this maybe bitterness toward our brother and sister in Christ. Pay attention to how you live. Look carefully, then, at how you walk. And the beauty of this all, out of reverence for Christ, Christ is the one who gave himself for us. Christ is the one who, um, through the power of the Spirit, fills us and gives us the power to do these things that as we look at them, we say, they are so contrary to my sinful nature. How? God's provision is sufficient. It's good enough. May we be filled with his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, our prayer is simply for you to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be people who live wisely and embody your story in the everyday stuff of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.